You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would, please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 14. Tonight we come to the 13th verse. We will read to verse 21, Matthew chapter 14. And we read beginning with verse 13. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. But they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And ordering the crowds to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. And there were about five thousand men who ate, besides women and children. Let's go to our God together and ask His blessing tonight. Father in heaven, as we open our minds and hearts to Your Word, we ask You to teach us. Deal with our lives in the way that You perfectly know us. Apply Your Word to us in ways that will change us. Ways that will protect us. Ways that will nourish us. Ways that will provide for us and prepare us all that you would have us to do and all the many ways that you would make use of us for your namesake and for the advancement of your kingdom. We are mindful of people who don't know your son and we ask that you would save. But we're also mindful that your church is precious to you and these gatherings are first always for your people and we pray that this would be a night in which we are washed and fortified by what you have supplied. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something sad that we often meet with in the company of people who profess to know Jesus. It's not unusual to meet with someone who has a head full of knowledge, but a heart that lacks compassion. A mind full of answers for people, a tongue ready to give those answers, but a heart that is not connected with the plight of the people to whom we speak. Like a wind-up box ready to just pop out and give biblical answers, but we're not caring about the people right in front of us. And I'm not just talking about preaching. I'm talking about the people that you and I meet with every day. Do we care about the people that we're sharing God's Word with? Do we really care about them? We'll be reminded tonight that our King was and is compassionate. 
The Bible says in the 14th verse, and when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Two things really emphasized in our verses, the, the compassion of Jesus and the miraculous power on display in and through his life. I want to be clear at the outset that the kind of compassion I'm talking about from these verses is holy compassion. The kind of compassion found in God Himself, the kind of compassion that the Spirit of God produces in the lives of the people of God. Holy compassion. If we're talking about God's kind of compassion, it never disagrees with the Word of God. If we're talking about biblical compassion, it never compromises with sin. It doesn't treat things that are hateful to God as if they're not hateful. As we talked about this morning, it doesn't pretend to, to, to love the sinner when in fact it's just loving itself. Right? Biblical compassion is not a cloak for cowardice. And what makes it especially sad when you meet with people who have the answers of Jesus but not the affection of Jesus, what makes it especially sad is we're a people explained by compassion, explained by mercy. If not for God's compassion, if not for His mercy, you and I would have perished. A people who've been loved like we have been loved, pitied as we have been pitied, shown mercy as we've been shown mercy, should be a people full of love and pity and mercy and compassion for other people. Think about Luke chapter 7. Jesus invited to a dinner and a sinful woman is expressing her love for Christ and it bothered the host. Luke 7.36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. 
But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. See, the question, the, the, the point Christ is making is not that there are some people who are forgiven just a little. You know, it just took a little grace to see them into the kingdom of heaven. No, no, what he's saying is, how do you see your forgiveness from God? Do you see it as something small or do you see it as something great? And if you see yourself as a sinner who's been forgiven great sin, then you love him much. And you have compassion for fellow sinners. So tonight, what I want you to think about with me from these verses are three characteristics of the compassion of our King. As I said, there are two things on display in these verses, His compassion and His power. I want us to think about His compassion. We will discuss His power, but I want us to think about His compassion, three characteristics of the compassion of our King. And as we do that, I want us to examine our own lives we sang about it tonight, that we're called to walk in His steps, to follow in His ways. Does your life bear the marks of the compassion of Christ for other people? First, take note of the context. I mentioned it this morning, verse 13. There's the question as to whether it looks back to verse 12 or looks back to verses 1 and 2. The Legacy Standard Bible understands it as looking back to the 12th verse. Now, when Jesus heard about John... He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And he went ashore. He saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Here's about John or here's about Herod. Either way, he wants to be alone. And so he goes away in a boat to a wilderness area to a place uninhabited. The same thing he did in Matthew chapter 4 when he heard that John had been arrested. Matthew 4.12 says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And so our Lord withdraws. And it's in that context that we learn about his compassion. Here's the first point I want to make tonight. Compassion exists in an unselfish life. Compassion exists in an unselfish life. He clearly goes to an uninhabited place for a reason. We should always remember that our Lord's humanity is real. He knew sadness. If this is he heard about John, then I assume and have no problem believing that Jesus was saddened by that news. Our Lord wept outside the tomb of Lazarus. Our Lord wept over the spiritual condition of the city of Jerusalem. Would not be hard to understand at all that Jesus hears about John and he's made very sad by that. Or if what is in mind is he's heard about Herod, he also in his humanity knows sobriety. He knows what it is to understand the seriousness of a moment. The opposition to Jesus is rising. It's becoming more fierce. He recognizes that he's headed into the last phase, as it were, of his march to the cross. Either way, he wants to be alone for a time, for just a moment, if possible. But he steps off that boat, he steps onto the shore, and what does he meet with? He meets once again with a multitude of people. And what does he feel in that moment? Not aggravation. 
not the feeling that he's being put out. The Bible says he looked upon them and he felt compassion for them. And not just a feeling, but the kind of attitude that acts on the desire to help someone. He meets their needs. Verse 14, he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. No one has ever been more unselfish than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where you find genuine compassion, in a life that is selfless, a life that is devoted to the glory of his Father in a singular way, a life that is willing to spend and be spent on behalf of others, a life where there's humility as well as selflessness. No one ever emptied himself to the degree that Jesus emptied himself. No one ever sacrificed himself in the way that Jesus sacrificed himself. No one ever embraced humble service in the way that Jesus did. That's where you find this kind of compassion. But I would remind us that this is the life we've entered into. This is the one who has given himself to us. We now are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been given his very life. And we are called to learn of him and to imitate him and to walk in his ways, to embrace the very same kind of humility and selflessness that's on display in him. Philippians 2 verse 1 says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul, writing to the Philippian church, says, I want you to to walk together in unity. I want you to love each other because you have encouragement in Christ. You have comfort that comes from love. You participate together with the Spirit's work. Put that on display in the way that you live toward each other. And then he describes it in the third verse. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. No selfishness, no pride. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Christ feels compassion, and in Christ we see selflessness and humility. And Paul says to the church at Philippi, and God says to us tonight by His Word, that that's the very kind of life that you and I are to embrace. We have it in Christ Jesus. We're to embrace it and walk in it. So examine your own life for a moment and ask yourself, do you know compassion for people? Do you really care about others? Are you self-centered or are you others-centered in a way that reflects that you're really God-centered, Christ-centered? Do you make the connection between hard-heartedness and sin? Do you make the connection between a, a lack of compassion and the presence of that which kills compassion? 
People who lack compassion are proud people. People who lack compassion are selfish people. I mean, if you just care about you, you don't really care about how anybody else feels or what anybody else's situation is or how even your attitudes, words, and actions affect another person. You just care about you. A narcissistic life is a hard-hearted life. Are you characterized by the love of God, you see? Because people who lack compassion are not walking in the love of God. 1 Corinthians 13 makes that so plain. Paul writes there in the first verse, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I can have all kinds of eloquence, but if I'm not loving, I'm just making noise. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he describes love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. What a great way to examine yourself. Does it have to be your way? It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What characterizes holy compassion? It's found in a life that's unselfish. And that's the life we've been given in Christ. We have the capacity to live humble, unselfish lives. And that's the life we're called to embrace conscientiously, intentionally. Lord, I will put others before myself. The question is, are you doing that, believer? You have that capacity, but are you living like that? And if your heart has become cold toward the the needs of others or the cares of others, the feelings of others, the plight of others, it's because you're not embracing the life you've been saved to live. Second thing I want you to notice about the compassion of our King, compassion extends to the whole of humanity. It exists in a selfless life, an unselfish life, and then it extends, compassion extends to all humanity. Verse 15, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. But they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And ordering the crowds to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. On display in our verses is Christ's compassion for people, but what What you might miss is the fact that his compassion extended not just to the multitudes, 
but to his own disciples. Because Christ desires to use this as an opportunity to instruct his disciples. He's loving his disciples even as he's loving the multitudes. He uses this as a training opportunity. In fact, John's account tells us all this was actually prompted by a question from Jesus. John 6, verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this, verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Christ, already knowing what he's going to do, involves his disciples in the operation because he loves them. He cares about them. He cares about their development, their growth, their understanding. He wants them to grasp certain things. What does Jesus want to teach them through this miracle? He wants to teach them about his own person. This is a creation miracle. You understand that? I mean, Christ had to bring into being something that wasn't there. 5,000 men. I want you to let that sink in. This auditorium, if it is jam-packed full, we could maybe get 1,000 people in here. Now multiply that by five. Look around at this building. Think about the times you've seen it most crowded. And then think about multiplying that by five. That was just the men. Then you had the women. Then you had the children. This was an enormous multitude of people, and they had five loaves of bread and two fish. And I'm always amazed at how critics, unbelievers, try to explain away this miracle, doubting that Christ actually multiplied the food because they had 12 baskets full of leftovers. So the miracle was not, you know, take a crumb and pass it on. Wow, I'm full. The miracle was in what was provided. And that meant creation. Here is the, here's the one who spoke the worlds into existence, was the agent of creation. And now he's taking material things and multiplying it until everybody's fed with leftovers besides. Do you know who Jesus is, you see? He wants his disciples to have this burned into their brains. Do you understand who I am? He's also teaching them about his own provision. He's taking something they provided and then doing something with it that could never be explained by what they provided. He commands them to feed the multitude and then provides for what he commands. Isn't this instructive for our lives, for ministry, as well as just the way we live our lives? This is exactly what we meet with in the course of the Christian life. Jesus commands us to be instruments of his compassion. He takes what we bring to the table. He takes what we supply, but then he meets needs in a way that transcend anything that we could ever supply. What he does in the lives of people through us cannot be explained by us. He allows us the privilege to be involved. He allows us the privilege to make a contribution. But he doesn't need the contribution, and what he does far exceeds any contribution we've ever made. He also teaches them about his trustworthiness. 
because his instructions made no sense. You don't have to send them away. You can feed them right here. But Lord, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. And there are thousands of people. Bring them here to me. Now you begin to distribute what I give you. What did they do? They obeyed him. They obeyed his word in a naked fashion. What he said made no sense from a human point of view, but they took him at his word. And they did what he said. And the result was they, they witnessed something that amazes the world. And he's still loving us in the same way to this day, isn't he? He's still having compassion upon us in the same way to this day. The Bible says every morning when we get up, we meet with the mercies of God. And what do we meet with but God putting his character on display? And what do we meet with but God providing for us even as he makes use of us? And what do we see on display but that God's word is absolutely trustworthy. We will never be any wiser than to simply obey his word in a naked fashion. You said it, I will do it. Because you are all wise, all powerful, and always good. Christ's compassion was not just for the multitudes. He's loving his men even as he's loving the rest of the crowd. But what is noted in this text is his love for that multitude that has followed him there. And I would remind you that just because Jesus healed someone or just because he, in this case, fed someone, it didn't mean that they were saved. In fact, just as God is gracious today to this world and sinners who are lost and God-haters are experiencing God's grace every day in various ways, so in the life and through the ministry of Jesus, lost humanity met with blessing. And in fact, as we heard in our scripture reading, many, perhaps even it wouldn't be wrong to say most of this crowd, proved to be very fickle toward Jesus. The Apostle John tells us that those whom Jesus fed with the bread came looking for Jesus later. And Jesus reproves them. John 6.26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're not coming to me this second time because you understood the significance of what you benefited from. You're coming to me because you had your bellies filled. And he says in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, this is amazing. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you. Isn't sinful blindness startling? You're, you're following him around because he just performed a miracle. Now you're asking for a sign? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. So Christ has compassion on a people that he already knows are not believers. The compassion of God extends to the whole of humanity on this side of eternity. Christ having compassion on his own men, Christ having compassion on unbelievers. Which is why the church is not to see the world as an opposing army, but as our mission field. The world considers the church to be its enemy, but the church considers the world of humanity to be our mission field. And we will be hated by all because of the name of Christ, but we are called to embody the compassion of Christ even toward those who hate us in His name. In fact, it's when we're loving sinners in their sinful condition that God's mercy is really on display. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can say it this way, the love of God does not extend itself on the basis of merit. You don't say, the Lord has shown me mercy, He's been gracious to me, He's loved me. Now, I'm going to love you if you earn it or if you deserve it. Matthew 5.44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do we think about compassion toward this world? We think of it in terms of our God, our Father, and in terms of our Savior on display in verses like these. Do you know about that kind of love and compassion? Do you love those who count you to be their enemy? Do you love those who mistreat you, who spitefully use you? Do you know what it is to, to, to desire their salvation and to understand what is really at the root of their hatred for you, which is they are estranged from God? Their need is Christ, and the same God who had mercy upon you is able to save them so that you continue to display gospel love, Christ's mercy, even to the world of unbelievers, and in that way you imitate your Father, who today has caused His Son to shine on the just and the unjust, and He takes care of people who curse His name. What do you see about holy compassion in these verses? You see where it exists. It exists in an unselfish life, a life of humility. And how far does it extend? It extends to the whole of humanity, not just your brothers, but those in the world who so desperately need Christ and hate the church. Even there, we love with the love of God. Third and final point I would make, verses 15 through 21, compassion extends not only to the whole of humanity, 
It extends to the whole man. We have compassion for the whole person. Read verses 15 through 21 again. Now when it was evening, the disciples came and said to him, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. What is that? That's a physical need. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. He doesn't say they don't need food. They just need preaching. They're grown people. They know why they came out here. We don't need to do anything for them. No, he cares about their physical need. And then he goes on through the supply of the bread and the fish, and he, and he meets the need. Christ meets the needs of the body. In fact, earlier in verse 14, when he sees the crowd and has compassion, what does he do? He heals their sick. He meets a physical need. Christ cares for the needs of the body. But the miracle speaks to something that is a greater need, the need of the soul. And indeed, when the crowd looks for Jesus again because their bellies have been filled, he drives that point home. We read it earlier, John 6, 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. You're very concerned about your belly, but you ought to be concerned about your soul. And you're willing to put forth effort to have food that perishes. But what you need in a much greater way is the food that endures to eternal life. If you and I are walking in holy compassion, we're going to care about both. We won't be hard-hearted when it comes to the material needs of people. In the name of emphasizing the spiritual, in the name of emphasizing ministry, we will not be hard-hearted, cold-hearted toward people's material needs. But if what we know is holy compassion, we will never lose sight, never lose sight of people's greatest need. Which means that our ministry will not devolve into that sort of thing where you're busy meeting people's material needs, but you neglect their greatest need, which is their soul. Social gospel where you feed people and you clothe people and you send them away and they never even hear the gospel. That is a tragedy. You go and you travel the world to drill water wells. But are you evangelizing the lost and are you planting churches? You don't neglect the one, but you don't emphasize it over the most important issue. The most important issue is the food that endures to eternal life. Are you soft-hearted toward both? Are you compassionate toward both people's material needs, physical needs, bodily needs, and their greatest need, which is their spiritual need? What do you see in the compassion of our King? You see a life where the greatest selflessness, the greatest humility, the greatest sacrifice is on display. And you see someone, Jesus, who loves His own but he also has compassion for the multitudes, knowing that they don't believe him. 
knowing that many of them won't believe Him. He still has compassion for them. And He has compassion for both their material needs, but what is most on His mind and heart is their spiritual need. That is holy compassion. Let me finish tonight by saying what is on what is under examination when we think about this subject is salvation. Every one of us, we can go through seasons where we are not as compassionate as we should be. But that will not characterize our life as a whole if the Lord has saved us. God's love has been poured out in our hearts and it is going to manifest itself. You can't love Jesus and not love people. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you love the church? Do you love the lost? To the degree that it's not just talk. It's in deed and it's in truth. How does that manifest itself? It manifests itself in ministry, both to the saved and to the lost. It means that you pour out your life, you, you make use of, of your resources, though the Lord is going to transcend your resources, in the realm of the church and in the realm of evangelism, in both. We meet with lost people every day in a variety of settings. Does it even enter our minds on a regular basis where those people will spend eternity? Do we care? The fuel for evangelism is not someone loading up your conscience with guilt. The fuel for evangelism is the Spirit of God flooding your heart with love. Because when we love people, we care about their eternal destiny. And then the needs of your brothers and sisters, their spiritual needs and their material needs. Do we care? But you can't stop at the church. What's it like at home? Interesting, isn't it, that in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, when our Lord is questioned about divorce, He talks about hard-heartedness. Moses gave a a concession because of your hard-heartedness. What happens when a home is full of conflict? What has happened is there's no compassion. Love is missing. Are you loving your spouse? Are you really loving your spouse? Do you care? about their feelings, about their life, about their future? Are you loving your children? Does your discipline reflect love? Remember, we're talking about holy compassion. I'm not talking about dealing with your children leniently, but I would say that faithful discipline reflects understanding, which is why Ephesians 6 talks about the danger of exasperating your children. Discipline that is all law and no grace, exasperates children. Is compassion on display in your home? The way you and your husband or you and your wife deal with each other and then how you deal with your children? 
But this also applies not just to the church, not just to the family, but our everyday encounters in the world. So easy in the, in the busyness of our lives, in the selfishness of our lives, to forget to put ourselves in the shoes of another person. You're in a hurry. Someone's waiting on you. They obviously are struggling. They don't know what they're doing. It's taking longer than it should. How do you respond? Someone makes a mistake driving. You never do that, right? Isn't it amazing? We, we can cut someone off. What do we say? Sorry, sorry. Didn't see you. Someone cuts you off. Idiot. Right? I mean, it's a different situation. Because it's you, you see? It's you. Dealing with people struggles harshly. Someone calls us. They're hurting. They're struggling. They just pour out their heart to you. It's unrehearsed. It's unvarnished. It's not pristine. It doesn't reflect everything you know. Before you start rattling off your answers, do you put yourself in their shoes so that, as the book of Galatians tells us, when we find someone overcome in a transgression, we deal with them gently, considering ourselves, lest we too be tempted. See, that's compassion. Not lenient, not compromising, not disagreeing with Scripture. Just a humble, selfless, Christ-like love for someone else. Everything in these gospel accounts is meant really to say, look at Jesus. We look at Him. We love Him. We admire Him. We behold Him as we sing about tonight. But then we're also told in the Word of God, now walk like Him. You have His mind. Embrace what you see in Him. And so may the Lord make us a people who exhibit holy compassion. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your compassion toward us, your mercies that we meet with every day, your patience with us. As we mention often, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? You have loved us and in ways that amaze us or completely undeserved. We've been forgiven much, not little, and therefore our lives should reflect much love, not little. Strengthen us, Lord, to love you more than we do, and strengthen us to love others more than we do, and in that way to reflect our Savior's love. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.